church said. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 4. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness, shown to a cripple, and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you, and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage? and the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. 
They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. A lot going on in that chapter. How many like to see miracles? Amen. Miracles didn't die with the apostles. God still does miracles today. Amen. Say, well, I don't believe that. Then you'll get what you believe for because they require faith. So let's look at Acts 4 together. The church is growing, and you notice uh, when the church was small and in its formative phases, God protected it, and he covered it with a bubble, and he still does protect the church, and he still does uh, keep us and sustain us and provide everything we need. But there was something special about this fledgling church here as it's being born, and uh, God protects it, and he keeps it, uh, he keeps it pure, he keeps it safe. Now, as the church grows, miracles continue to happen. The apostles are ministering and doing miracles, and God is allowing miracles to be manifested. Why? Because they're a testimony to what's happening here is more than just a, a theological tangent. It's a testimony to the fact that this Christ Christ, who they're talking about, is risen, and he moves in power, and he touches people today. Amen? And so we see these miracles coming, and the church is continuing to grow, and initially they have favor, and, and the religious people are favorable to them. Remember, they're meeting in the synagogue, so that means if you're meeting in the synagogue, the, the rulers and the priests and the temple guard and all these people, they're allowing you to meet there. They're allowing them to teach there. You're seeing favor. The government is not having a problem with what they're doing. The Romans are not threatened by what they're doing, but all of that is about to dry up. Now, the religious leaders are going to uh, they're going to be the first ones to persecute the church, and here's why. They persecute the church when it becomes big enough to become a threat to them. And that's what had happened. The church, you know, when something's small, and it's cute, and it's fuzzy, and you can pet it, and you can hold it in your hand, and it's not a threat, you know, it's like a poodle. That's one thing. But when it gets to be, you know, a 125-pound pit bull... Hello. And that's what, that, in, the, in the religious leaders' minds, that's what happened. This thing wasn't cute anymore. It wasn't cuddly anymore. It wasn't small and, and non-threatening anymore. Now it had gotten big enough to the point that they were threatened by it. Now, what 
was the church a threat to? Now, I want you to, we're going to get into the mind of the Pharisee, the Sadducee here. Uh, the, the church now had grown to a size, remember they said in the text that it had grown to about five thousand men. We'll talk about that. But, uh, you know, now the church was big enough to be a threat, a threat to what? Their dry, legalistic, dead religion. They had become so legalistic, so dry, so dead that, you know, now you, you see something come along that has life. Something that comes along and it's exciting. Something that comes along and the spirit is moving. Now, that, the, the move of the spirit and all of the signs and the wonders and all of the growth is a threat to their dry, dead, legalistic system that they created. Now, this wasn't God that created that. Man had made it that. What else was it a, a threat to? Their control. The religious sects that controlled Judaism were, you know, now threatened. And, and they saw that they were exerting control. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, you know, the high priests. You had the, the legalistic lawyers and all of these guys that formed, you know, the religious, the religious leadership core. Now, all of a sudden, they don't have complete control of the people because there is something else going on spiritually that threatens their hold. Now listen to me, religious systems that are devoid of God, governmental systems that want to control people, they are threatened by anything that threatens their hold over the people. You're going to see this, these religious leaders, the only reason they don't snuff the church out right there is because they're afraid of the people. And it was the same thing when Jesus was around. It's the same thing with the Apostle Paul. We're going to see this. It was a threat to their control over the masses. The, now the church had become a threat to their spiritual stature because what they uh, would pontificate and share all of their wisdom and they would share all of their, you know, their teachings and all their little uh, legalistic interpretations of what the Word of God said. And, and with all that that they would do, there was no manifestation of the supernatural. Think about that. All we had is dry teaching. All we had is rules and regulations. All we had is uh, interpretations of things that probably were obvious and didn't need to be interpreted. They took Ten Commandments and made volumes of laws out of them. And now they have no manifestation of the supernatural. And here comes the apostles just telling people they can be free, telling people they can have a relationship with God, telling people they can be forgiven of their sins and they're laying hands on people and they're being healed and there's signs and there's wonders and miracles. Do you realize what a huge threat this is to dead, dry religion? Wow. It's game on. The gloves are off. The church is established. God has protected it. But now uh, it is about to face persecution. In verses 1 and 2, the apostles were ministering there. And the Sadducees send the temple guard. Now realize, temple guard sounds spiritual. These were armed soldiers. Imagine you're, you're preaching the gospel. And you know, the paddy wagon rolls up. And the cops snatch you up and drag you away. Welcome to the ministry. So they send the temple guard and the soldiers snatch them up and they take them away. Now, apparently here was the tiff. The Sadducees were all upset that the disciples were teaching the people about Jesus' resurrection. Say resurrection. Say it like you mean it. All right. So they're teaching about the resurrection. Why? Because a big part of the gospel is that Jesus died and that he rose. So they're teaching about the resurrection. Now the Sadducees as a sect 
differing from the, uh, you know, the other sects of the religious leadership there, the Pharisees in particular, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And that was one of their pivotal teachings. They rejected the fact that anyone could rise from the dead, that anyone could live in heaven. When you died, you just went into the ground and you were done. And so the Sadducees had a theological problem with what was being taught here. Because they were in a, a theological era, that was the thing that clashed with the early church. Realize there is a resurrection. There is life after death. Jesus did raise from the grave. Hello? Amen? The Sadducees were wrong. Oh, but they're so smart. They're so spiritual. They're so learned. They pour over the text and, and, they, and they know the prophets inside out and backwards, but they miss the truth. You see, theological error will always put, you know, if you're in theological error, you're always going to clash with the truth. And that's what you're seeing here, a clash with the truth. The, the Sadducees are mad. They, they don't believe in the resurrection. The, this new gospel is all about the resurrection as Jesus rose from the dead, and there's the spiritual conflict. So verse 3 shows us that because of the doctrinal conflict, they lay hands on them and they arrest them. And you know, think about that for just a second. They got arrested for preaching something that somebody else didn't agree with. They got arrested for saying something that other people didn't want to hear. Does this sound like our politically correct, nonsensical culture right now? Hello? Human beings do the same things over and over again. When they don't want to hear the truth, they outlaw the truth. If you say the truth, then it makes them mad. Then they turn it around to where the truth that you told is now hate. I hope some of this sounds familiar. Because it's the world we live in now. Nothing has changed. Uh, this doctrinal error that they had caused them to be angry. Now, understand this. They get snatched up and dragged away and taken to jail. Now, that's, that's quite an interesting situation there. The most dangerous people are those who lust for control over others. The most dangerous people are those who want to control the masses, politicians, religious leaders, tyrants, manipulators, whatever it is, whoever they are. If they want to control others, they're dangerous people. Why? Because when truth or light exposes the, the darkness of their heart, they're going to fight against it. And that's exactly what you're seeing here. Verse 4 tells us, even though they're preaching to the people, they get dragged away by the spiritual police that many believed. Do you, do you find that to be refreshing? Do you notice that the truth is very, uh, the, the truth is very exciting to people who have the right heart? The truth is very, you know, I mean, think about it. There are people in countries now who are Christians where Christianity is outlawed. And in the underground church, like say, for instance, in China, the more the government tries to snuff it out, the more the government tries to say you can't do it, the more people come to Christ. Why? Because when the church is persecuted, it doesn't matter what others say. When people who have a heart to hear truth, hear the truth, they're willing to do anything to have that truth. We are so spoiled in America, but you know what? As we see our freedoms being threatened and taken away, we should be in prayer, we should be vigilant, and we should vote. Because spiritual liberties, religious liberty, is very important. It would be so sad for us to lose our liberties in this country because we were too lethargic to do anything about it. God help us. 
You never know how precious freedom is until you lose it. And I've learned something about tyrants through history. Once they take freedom away, it's real hard to get it back. It's quiet now. Okay. So many believed, and that's an interesting thing. They try to outlaw it. They try to shut it up. They, tr they try to discredit the people who are preaching. They arrest them. They drag them away. They make a public spectacle. But the truth is just too attractive. And many believe, and it says that, you know, 5,000 men had come into the church. Now, that could be a church of 15 to 20,000 people, uh, each man representing a family, a household. You know, it's, it's exponential there. So the church is growing. That, how, how many think a church? of 15,000 to 20,000 is pretty big. Good start. So, you know, the gospel is spreading and it's a threat. Verses 5 and 6, uh, Peter and John spend a night in jail. And, you know, they arrested them at the end of the day on purpose so they could make them spend the night in jail. Realize a lot of what's going on here. Uh, Gary, this is really boomy. Is, uh, it, how does it sound out there? I, I can't hear you. It sounds like it's boomy. Okay. All right. Is it better? Okay. Somewhere in between boomy and off. After a night in jail, they're drugged before... Uh, the spiritual leadership. They're drugged before the, the spiritual big shots. Look who, you know, who, look who comes to the meeting here. There's the rulers, the elders, the scribes, the high priest Annas, and all of his entourage. And this cast of characters is assembled partly to demonstrate their own importance. Do you ever notice when there's, a, you know, people who are important like to show up at important events and sit in important places and, and you know, show how important they are? That's part of what was going on here. All these important people got together to, you know, to straighten out these little religious zealots here. We're going we're gonna to examine them. So they get together and, and, and the high priest is there. And, you know, I mean, it's a serious situation. This cast of characters is there, one, to demonstrate their own importance and that they're in charge. And number two, they're there to intimidate Peter and John. Understand that. Don't, don't ever think that the enemy won't try and intimidate us because he does. And he'll use all kinds of people who say they're important or they're smart or they're spiritual to do it. So here they are and they're drug in front of this group. And verse 7 basically says that they circle them. I mean, think about this here. You know, the, the video didn't really show it like this, the layout. But it says, when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire by what power and what name have you done this? So here they're surrounded and they're put in the middle. Why? There again, to intimidate them. They were probably sitting up in chairs or higher, you know, so they could look down on them. Why? So they can intimidate them. And I want you to see that, how the enemy rolls here. They circle them and they start to fire questions at them. The first question they ask reveals their motive. By what power and what name have you done this? Now understand something. These leaders feel threatened. Their power is threatened. So they want to know by what power the apostles have done this miracle. Uh, listen, power only recognizes power. Come on, track with me a little bit. There, there are certain, you know, they want power, they want control, they have 
power to exert control over other people. They want to know, where'd you guys get your power from? Because that question that they asked is the first one, and it reveals their heart. And they want to know where the apostles derived their power from. You know, verse 8, they thought that they could intimidate these two guys. And they thought that, you know, they could circle them. They could be proud and arrogant and kind of pompous and, you know, just their sheer numbers. But they didn't count on facing off against the Holy Spirit. Hello, verse 8, it says that what? Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. So here's this whole cast of clowns here around them that figures out, you know, we're, we're going to intimidate these two guys. And they didn't realize they weren't squaring off against two men. They were squaring off against the Holy Spirit. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, begins to speak. Now, this is a, this is a powerful thing I want you to understand. Don't fear man. Don't fear the government. Don't fear the, the overeducated. Don't fear those people who say, we're, you know, we're smarter than you. We're better than you. We look down on you. Never as a Christian. Now, don't be arrogant like them. Stay humble. Amen? Don't forget that part. But don't be afraid. Why? Because listen to me. God will protect his people. And listen, you say, well, I don't, I don't know what I'll say. I, I, you know, I'm not smart enough. Listen, the Holy Spirit will fill your mouth when it's time to speak on God's behalf. Amen? Amen? You don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't have to have systematic theology and memorize, you know, your eschatology and all of this stuff and have studied all the epistles and and be able to quote the whole book of John from memory. See, these are the things that the devil tells us. Well, you're not smart enough. Well, you're not educated enough. Well, you're not saved long enough. Well, you're not spiritual enough. Or you don't talk well in front of people. And these are the lies he tells us to shut us up. Listen, if you step out on a limb for God, he'll back you. And if he puts you in a position where you need to speak, he'll fill your mouth. (laughs) Trust me, he does it for me every service. (laughs) And so they try to intimidate him, but, you know, they're squaring off against the Holy Spirit. Peter, uh, Peter speaks under the anointing, and he's bold and he's articulate. There's a real poise there, and it's because of the Holy Spirit. Now, remember, this is Peter. Say Peter. Peter, the only time Peter took his foot out of his mouth is to insert the other foot. Peter was always saying stupid stuff to the point where Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. That was Peter. This same Peter is up there and he's articulate. He's under pressure, yet he has poise. You know, he's he's just flowing. He's about to just address this whole group of leadership. And, and, And who is this guy? What's the difference? I'll tell you what the difference is. The difference is Peter without the Holy Ghost and Peter with the Holy Ghost. Remember in the upper room, come on, the Holy Spirit came upon them. The the difference is the Holy Spirit because otherwise Peter would have probably had his sword out fighting his way through the crowd already. Remember, he used to cut ears off for a hobby. So the Holy Spirit makes the difference. You and I need the Holy Ghost. And uh, Peter speaks with passion. In verses 8 through 12, he doesn't pull any punches. He tells the truth in love. And that's what we have to remember. Not telling the truth is not loving. Oh, but pastor, I don't want to offend anybody. Oh, but pastor, I don't want to say that because they they think it's hateful. Oh, pastor. Listen, not telling the truth is not loving. If a person's going to hell and you tell them, oh, it's okay, you know, God won't send you to hell or, you know, it's okay. Listen, we've got to tell the truth to sinners before they end up without a savior. 
I'm so thankful that somebody told me the truth when I was lost and headed to hell. I'm so glad that somebody took the risk to tell me that I needed Jesus and I was lost. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so glad someone was willing to take the chance. Well, they could have said, you know, he looks a little unstable. He's pretty big. He might get mad. Let's just not tell him. Right? But somebody took the risk. Peter tells the truth in love. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't try and make it palatable. He's, he's not arrogant. He's not condescending. But, you know, he tells the truth articulately. And it's, 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 it has love on it. And you can feel the love. And the truth of it is just resonating. Peter's is respectful the way he addresses them. It said, then Peter filled with the Holy Ghost said to them, rulers and elders and people, if we are in trial today, for a benefit done to a sick man, as how to this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you, to all in Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, the man stands here before you in good health. Wow, what a testimony already. Now I want you to see all of what happened there. Peter... He doesn't pull any punches, and, and he tells them, you know, first off, he starts off with proper etiquette and social graces. He's respectful. He addresses them like a gentleman. He addresses them with some social grace. Amen? Listen, if you and I will have, uh, there is a way to speak that forces people to take us seriously. Hello? There's a way to address people with social grace, with etiquette, with proper protocol. When we do that, we force people to take us seriously. Now, being pompous or cocky or rude or vulgar does not serve us well as Christians. And you say, well, why are you saying this? Because Christians do things like that. Have you ever seen a Christian get in a fight with somebody about the love of God? Yeah, you, you know, and then by the time they're done, I mean, they, they, they were arrogant, they were condescending, they were judgmental, there was no love in it, and guess what? Nobody gets saved. So we have to have the right protocol. We should be respectful. We should speak articulately, and we shouldn't pull punches, but at the same time, being rude or condescending or, I mean, e even vulgar, even, you know, nasty, that's not the way to share the truth. Now understand, we get frustrated with difficult people. If you've ever been out on the streets witnessing, I used to, I did a six-week internship in New York City. I've talked to all kinds of people. I've had coffee thrown at me, tracks thrown back in my face, things that were said that you can't repeat in church or in public. But what do you do? Oh, he threw coffee on me, so I, you know, I fed him a couple elbows. <laughs> no, you gotta love people, right? It's a tough crowd tonight. But Peter, you know, this is not Peter. This is Peter on the Holy Ghost. And I want you to see that it makes all the difference. He asked him a pretty interesting question. Uh, guys, seriously, are we in trouble for like helping a sick guy? I mean, think about that. Are, 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 really, are we here today because we did a kindness to a crippled man? Is that what this is all about? Is that, is that why all you clowns are in your goofy robes circling us? looking down on us, acting like you're above us because we did a kindness to a crippled? Yeah. Kind of like the way he's starting off here. He's polite, but he's a gunslinger. He's getting right down to it. And he begins to, 
just talk about the crucifixion and the resurrection. And he gives, you know, in verse 10, he gives all the credit to Jesus alone. He basically says, you know, let me just tell you, the, the reason this man is healed is because of Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, in verse 11 and 12, he talks about the fact that the, the Jews or the people that he was talking to there had Jesus crucified, and it was a big mistake. He said, look, look what it says in 10, and let it be known to all of you and to the people of Israel, but by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, uh-oh, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, the man stands here before you in good health. Verse 11, he, Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no under name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Wow. Powerful, powerful gospel here. You're getting the gospel in a nutshell. Peter's hitting all the right points. Uh, you know, he's not intimidated. He is articulate. And now he's just laying it down here. He says, you guys crucified him and it was a big mistake. God raised him from the dead. And then he says, God made him the chief cornerstone. Now, what does that mean? That means if you know anything about building, when you set that first stone, it's gotta be plumb, it's gotta be level, and it's gotta be in the right spot. Because off of that, stone, everything comes off of that corner. You can't build anything straight. You can't build anything up in the air and you're not, it's going to be crooked out of square and not plumb if you don't have that cornerstone set. Am I telling the truth, Mr. Carpenter? Amen. So, you know, he said, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. So basically guys, if you don't have this, everything you're building is crooked. And there was nobody more crooked than the Sadducees and the Pharisees because you're gonna see in just a little bit that they could care less about the miracle, they could care less about what God was doing, they only cared about maintaining their own grip of power over the people. And so he talks about Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Verse 12 talks about Jesus' exclusivity. It says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no name under heaven where, by which man must be saved. So Jesus is not one of the many roads that lead to God. There's no such thing as all roads lead to God. Some roads lead right to hell. Some roads lead into despair. Some lead off a cliff. Some lead into spiritual destitution. But Jesus, the only name under heaven where which man can be saved. So there again, right away, they're not saying, you know, we're just a sect among sects and we all can get along. They're saying, it's Jesus alone. Boldness. Boldness. You know, many times I get invited to uh, do convocations or, or speak at places and they want me to pray or do a benediction or an opening prayer, if they tell me, you know, you, you just have to say God or you just have to say the Almighty or the Creator, but you can't say Jesus, you can keep your invitation. I'm not coming. I, I won't get up there and say, you know, uh, some kind of generic thing. Why? Because it's a lie and it's not what we stand for and it's not what the Bible teaches. So I'm not going. I'm not, I'll, I'll leave my suit in the closet. And you know what? You and I should not be ashamed of the name of Jesus, and we should not try and play down his exclusivity. He's the only way to salvation. He's the only one who died on the cross. He's the only one who died for sinners. He's the only one who raised from the dead. He's the only one who saves and heals and delivers. Verse 13 and 14 show that the rulers are forced to take notice of a few things. The first thing they notice is that Peter and John had amazing confidence 
You see, these guys were into power, so they saw their confidence as power, and they were impressed with that. Then they noticed that they weren't formally educated, yet they were articulate and compelling. Did you notice that? There's another thing that the world is enamored with, intelligence. Well, these guys don't have any degrees. They don't have any titles in front of their name. They're not like, you know, doctor, uh, you know, this or DDS or MSS or MSG. I don't even know what they stick in front of their names anymore. <laughs> But they're uneducated. Yet listen to them speak. Listen to how passionate they are. Listen to how compelling they are. They're forced to admit this. They recognize that these men had been with Jesus. Did you hear that? That means two things. Number one, they recognized Jesus had really influenced them and motivated them. And number two, they were eyewitnesses to what they were testifying about. The eyewitness account is important. In fact, it's one of the marks of apostleship. You have to be an eyewitness. You have to have interaction with Jesus uh, to be an apostle in that day. And so these men were with Jesus, and you know, they were uneducated, yet they could speak and teach and, and just have, you know, this incredible poise, and they took note of that. And the last thing that they took note of is they could not deny that the man was healed, so they had nothing to say. Wow. Think about that for a second. They, 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 they listen to these guys speak, and they're like, this is just amazing. These guys are uneducated. You know, and, and it says, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, not only, you know, he was crippled, he's standing there. I love the way the video showed him running upstairs and jumping around. He was just happy not to be crippled anymore. Everybody was mad but the healed guy. The religious people were mad. The healed guy was, woo, this is great. So he's standing there with them. So they had nothing to say in reply. You know, and that's the truth, isn't it? Miracles, our testimony, our good works, our good character, our blessed lives speak a testimony that no one can refute. Amen? So they don't know what to do with these guys. They know that they're a threat to their power, but, you know, they have no no real case against them. Verse 15 and 17 show the darkness of these guys' hearts because they can't deny the miracle, but at the same time, they can't offend the multitude, so they can't punish them or jail them or whip them or, or do whatever they would do to them because they can't offend the people, so they decide to threaten them. They threaten the apostles because the apostles pose a threat to them. So right away, they start to, you know, talk down to them and threaten them and tell them, you know, you got to do X, Y, and Z and you better, you better fall in line and you better not make you know, a mess like this again. So understand, these guys weren't refuting the miracle. They admitted the miracle and they knew it was from God, yet they opposed it anyway. Doesn't that show the darkness of religious, religion's heart, doesn't it? The leaders identified the power source of the apostles and you say, well, how do you know that? Because in verse 18, they realize what the power source is and they speak right to it. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them, listen, not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Where was the apostles' power and authority? In the name of Jesus. Why did they know that? Because in the name of Jesus, this man was healed. The power was in Jesus' name. It wasn't in Peter. It wasn't in John. They just had been with Jesus. So the religious snakes 
identified the power source. And right away, they wanted them to not preach or teach in the name of Jesus. Wow, what an incredible thing. You gotta, you gotta give the enemy you know, some hand in it. He, he, he reveals the power source. They have a little bit of discernment, yet they go right after them. In verse 19 and 20, Peter and John basically tell him, judge for yourself, should we obey you or God? There again, no, no answer. Yet they continue to threaten them. I, I hope that you're seeing the darkness uh, of religion. You know, if, if you, religion is man's way of approaching God. The Bible only says one good thing about religion, and that's it takes care of the orphans and the widows in their distress, okay? All, all other stuff, religious systems, we are not a religious organization. You know, I have people say to me, they'll curse, and they'll say, oh, I'm sorry, I, I know you're religious. Anybody else? So to prove that I'm not religious, I curse back at them. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I say, I got to wake up this crowd a little bit, you know. I say to them, no, I'm not religious. And, and you know, I usually, I don't even let the cursing bother me. I, I say, I'm not religious. I'm the most irreligious reverend you've ever met. Now I have their attention. And I say, it's about a relationship. And it's your springboard too when people talk about religion and us being religious. It's about relationship, it's all about relationship. These guys had no relationship with God, yet they had plenty of religion to the point where they saw God move and they wanted to squash it because it threatened their power base. Wow. Verses 23 through 28, they get released and they go back to the, the believers and they tell them all that happened. In verses 25 through 26, they begin to uh, cite some Old Testament prophetic passages from David, you know, why the, the nations rage and all these things. And they're, they're basically just worshiping God and they're praising God. They're glorifying God. What? In their persecution. And this is a beautiful thing. They didn't go home and say, well, I'm not doing that again. How, how many times, you know, you go through something, a uh, persecution or a bad situation or a bad relationship, and you're, and you're like, I'm never getting involved with that again. People in relationships that crumble, I'm never going to date again. I'm going to, you know, die in a room full of cats in a rocking chair. <laughs> right? But these guys, what? They were persecuted. They were locked up. They were grilled. They were threatened. Does that sound like a good afternoon to you? No, yet they're so excited, they're so happy. Why? Because when we're persecuted for righteousness sake, it's a blessing. Nobody's buying. Okay, well, they were excited. Hopefully we get excited too. Verse 29 through 30 is interesting. As they pray, they inform God about a few things, which I think is, you know, I understand why they're doing it here, but it's just interesting as if he didn't know. Listen to what they're saying as they're praying and glorifying God. And now, Lord, take note. So, hey, God, listen up. We want to tell you something. Of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. So they wanted God to know they were threatened, that they were told to not speak in Jesus' name, that their lives were on the line. But give us confidence, God, to speak and to be bold and to continue to preach the gospel. That's a good prayer there. Sometimes even though we know God knows, we got to remind him what we're going through. We got to remind him what we're up against. David maybe had to remind him, hey, the giant's name is Goliath, in case you missed it, God. So when I throw this rock, make sure it hits Goliath. <laughs> so they, they let God know they've been threatened, and they ask God to give them 
confidence. God responds to their prayers in verse 31. And what a beautiful response here. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Amen. What did Peter need when he stood before the persecutors, he needed the Holy Spirit. What did the church need once it was threatened with persecution? It needed the Holy Spirit. What do we need to reach this generation with the love of Jesus Christ and the gospel? The Holy Spirit. Verse 32 through 37 uh, concludes the chapter. There's kind of a shift of gears here. We went from this threatening and persecution and the Holy Spirit kind of rocking them and exciting them and filling them and they're going to respond by preaching the word with boldness. Now 32 through 37 is interesting because the church uh, in its formative stages here begins to uh, increase and there are some needs in it and we see that the, the believers begin to share with each other. They begin to put greed aside and it's really interesting here. When somebody had an abundance and someone had lack, they would share with each other. Say share. Sharing. Do you ever see two little kids that you know are in a sandbox and you notice how much they like to share their toys with each other? Some of us are like that grown up spiritually. Mine, mine, mine. You know, you, you got eight buckets and three shovels and that poor kid's digging with his hand. Share. Share with each other. Love one another. Hello? No, I see some people still ain't buying. No, I ain't sharing nothing. Bought this with my own money. Ain't sharing nothing. It's all mine. Okay, God will take it away from you then. You say, why do you say that? Because what do you do with two kids who won't share? We take it away. Then they both cry. Anybody had kids? Right? What did they say? You don't share? I'm going to take it away. That's what my dad would do. Me and Gary be fighting over the same Frankenstein, Spider-Man, something. Fred would come in, take it away, then we have to look at each other. <laughs> well, they learned to share with each other. They had abundance, they met each other's needs. Some of them sold property and gave the money to the church. Now, there again, this was in the formative stages. You say, why in the world is this happening? Because the church at this point is gonna grow, it's gonna be persecuted, it's gonna be scattered. The believers need to learn to take care of each other. They need to share with each other. The church needs to learn uh, how to take in finances and meet needs, and uh, they're gonna have to finance missionary journeys, and you're gonna see Paul does all kinds of things to sustain himself, as well as churches be begin to sow uh, funds into other churches when those churches are hurting or have needs. The church is forming up and, you know, we're seeing uh, some really positive things happen there. Now, some of the way they were living was communal living. They were all together at that time. Understand that today the church doesn't need to live in communal living. We don't need to all get together and live in the same spot and nobody owns anything but their own toothbrush and share. No, we're not a bunch of hippies, Okay. The church has moved past this, and it's grown. It was a time of formative phase. Now, notice what's important here about the sharing and the giving and the, you know, the giving of properties and all of that. None of it was compulsory. Come on, Wednesday. It wasn't forced. It was all done out of a voluntary free will. So the, the kind of giving that the Bible teaches is not compulsory. It's free will, amen. If you have to be threatened to give, 
something's wrong. You know, if the preacher wants to see your W-2 to see if you're at least tithing. Do you know the Jews do that in the temple? You have to show your earnings so that they, they see if they're at least getting a tithe. Yeah, nobody wants to be Jewish now. Right? Could you, could you imagine? I've known pastors that somebody would call for a counseling appointment. Well, do you tithe? Let me look at your tithing record. Oh, and you're like, oh, oh. And the pastor would say, well, if you're not going to support the church and you're not going to, you know, then why should I support you? I mean, that, there was some hardcore stuff in the South. Yeah, I know you Yankees don't roll like that. But um, I'm just saying, giving was never meant to be mandatory, compulsory. It was always supposed to be free will. Amen. Well, and if you don't give, it's on you because God blesses us according to how we give. Now, in, in our society that, you know, thinks that we can redistribute wealth and we can take money from people who earned it and give it to people who don't, understand the Bible doesn't teach anything like that. In fact, if you study some of the parables, the one with the one talent who was lazy and did nothing with it lost it to the guy who had 10. God is not a communist. He's not a socialist. He rewards us. Every man will be rewarded for what he does. But we should share with each other. And we should do it voluntarily. And if we're cheap or if we're selfish, there's a judgment attached to that. If we watch others struggle and we're just swimming in abundance and we could care less, there's a judgment attached to that. The church is forming up. The church is receiving persecution, but God's hand is on them. There's signs, wonders, and miracles. There's still growth. And God is in full control. And what they did there... Uh, has been passed down to us today, and there's a lot of principles here that we should apply to our own lives. Let's bow our heads. Father, we just thank you tonight for this snapshot into the early church and for this snapshot into persecution. Father, we pray that the church grows so big and grows so powerful and is so filled with love and so filled with miracles and so filled with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ that it becomes a threat to every dry, dead religious thing around it. God, help us not to just sit in the corner and behave ourselves and be quiet and be hushed out of the public square and to not be effectual in preaching the gospel, but fill us with the Holy Spirit and with a passion to, to spread the word enough that it would warrant a pushback. Let us be a threat to the gates of hell like you intended us to be. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.